What will it take for black Americans to fully own the means of education? We're going to talk about it today with a very special guest on the Citizen Stewart Show. Hello. Was I supposed to say hello there? Sorry. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart, the CEO of Brightbeam, a national network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And sitting in today for Ravi, who is not with us today, is a very special guest who comes from one of the other Lost Debate programs, one of the many programs that we have at Lost Debate, Stacy Shells Harvey, who's a co-founder and chief executive officer of Regeneration Schools, a nonprofit charter school management organization that's dedicated to creating and revitalizing schools through a college prep and character mission. That's a very interesting disclaimer there for, uh, for, for the school, or qualifier, I should say. Uh, Stacy currently manages a network of three campuses and six schools in Chicago, God bless you for managing three <laughs> schools. I can't imagine what that's all about. Pray for us. <laughs> uh, you got a lot of work on your hands. I do. We've got one campus in Cincinnati. We'll have three campuses in Cincinnati in the fall. So between two different states, I will not lie to you. It's good work. It's the right work. But in the aftermath of the pandemic, it is not easy. No, I think like the pandemic, you know, today's question, I think at the top of the show, the pandemic radicalized me on this question mm. around how much power black people have in their educational opportunities, their educational, like their means of education. It's so important to me because the pandemic just showed how weak our strength was in education. We had a long time that we had nothing really going on for our kids and we had to scramble to make things happen. One of those things, when I say scramble to make things happen, one of those things was looking at newer ways of doing things like non-traditional education options like pods mm -hmm. and education collaboratives or homeschooling. And it was recently written up about in the 74. So I'd love to talk to you about this topic of Black folks looking for new ways to do school. And they started a pod schooling movement that's continuing now even after the pandemic. So what are your thoughts? I mean, you, you, you know, you see education from a very real place. You have schools that you actually see, you know, what goes into schooling. It's not easy stuff, teaching, learning, learning how to do budgets and schools and all that. So how are you feeling when you see that <laughs> there are families taking it into their own hands of how they're going to teach their kids? It's really interesting, Chris, because, you know, I see it as an educator and I also see it as a parent. And I have friends who homeschool and... I think the first time I realized that kids aren't coming back, right? And I don't think that we lost as many, but I am on the alumni board at my high school. And it's like the number one high school in the state of Ohio. And I'm on the board and there used to be 3,200 kids. And now there's 2,600. Mm, wow. And that does a huge thing to a budget, Right. And so as we were enrolling, you know, because this was a startup school in Cincinnati and we opened in 2019 and then we had to uh, shut our doors in 2020 with the pandemic. And then 
you know, the first year after the pandemic, I think everyone was like, oh, you know, people were scared to come back to school. But, you know, it's 2023 and people haven't come back to school. And these numbers, like, for instance, there's a charter school in Ohio where I am that's closing who opened last year because they can't get the numbers. And so as we're talking to people, the numbers in the district schools haven't increased. The numbers in the private schools haven't increased. And that's when we're like, Oh, people are homeschooling their kids. People were forced, like you said, to try something different. And people decided to stick with it. How successful do you think it'll be, given what you know about what it takes to really educate kids? <laughs> That's a good question. So, <laughs> now, I heard the little giggle in there. Like, because like, no. a part of me is like, we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm. But it depends on your resources. Okay. And that's black, white, wherever you fit with your identity, your ability to really homeschool your children well, it depends on your resources. And I have family members who are homeschooling their children right now, and I know they don't have the resources. Okay. And companies put out some what I consider some stuff might be better than there's some cheap stuff. So there are some kids who are getting homeschooled by parents who don't have the resources and they're sitting at home on a computer because they're expecting this computer thing to be able to do it. And we've already seen that didn't work because, you know, we handed out hundreds of computers and we helped families get the internet and we're seeing the results of it and we had quality programming. And then there are people that are creating pods and they're maybe hiring a tutor and people with a lot of resources, you know, and they're cultivating and curating something. Right. And anecdotally, I've watched the homeschool movement for years. And what I have found anecdotally is that the curriculum that the states offer, even if you're going to pay for like a really expensive one, like Barclay or something like that, right. They don't tend to be as rigorous as the assessments. So you could have really bright kids. I remember as a principal having a family who decided after homeschooling, and this is, you know, way before the pandemic, this is like 10 years ago, super bright child who had been homeschooling and the test that they were given to give their child set there in the 90th percentile and our test set there in the 50th. And that was shocking for the family. And it, it was not because the child wasn't bright. But when you have people who have put 10,000 hours into becoming a teacher, who have been getting developed every week, to people who have honed a craft, right? You have to make sure you have the resources to provide that level of education because it's not easy. I personally will not homeschool my own child, and I am a classically trained educator from just the pressure of mommy and my expectations and what I want him to achieve. He going to feel it. It's going to be like, oh, he going to hate me. He hate me. He be like, get her away from me. And then also I could see myself acquiescing to being like, okay, you can have a little break. You know, like, mm-mm. And there's more than just the academic test. There's also how are you going to work with other people in a group? How are you going to socialize? How are you going to get your first little girlfriend if you're 13 and you're at home and you are getting homeschooled by mom? And where are you going to meet people? And how are you going to learn to disagree? And all of those skills that you get, the friendships, the things that just happen from my son is asked, he's three years old. He's asked me for play dates already. And he wouldn't have that. My hu- And my husband had to force me to put him into school during COVID, right? Because he was mm. 
three months old when COVID hit. He was supposed to start his 18-month program, and I kept him back like a month or two. And my husband was like, "Mm mm-mm, he has to go to school. This little black boy is going to school with other people. And I was like, okay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was scared. Uh, You had to, like, just go with it. You know, when the Center on Reinventing Public Education, when they took a look at this question around what was going on with pods and homeschooling, they found that Blacks were more than twice as likely as whites to report that their children were happier in the Mm -hmm. pods, 52% to 25%. And it's interesting in this question about getting back to school, you know, if you look at who was really pushing to reopen schools, it was mostly white upper class parents that actually wanted to get their kids back into school. And, you know, I can make whatever judgment about that that I want, but we never really talked about, we, we did the thing that we always do when we talk about parents and what their opinions are, we always norm towards the white parent. So when we talked about parents were upset that schools weren't reopening, actually, that was mostly white parents. And mm-hmm. it was mostly upper middle class white parents. Actually, black parents, you know, like I just said, were reporting that their kids were happier in some of the new arrangements that they had. And a lot of it had to do with there was, you know, some things that go along with being in some of the segregated schools that our kids go to, like bullying. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just chaos and, and mm-hmm. you know, just loudness in ways in which when you're in a pod, a much more controlled environment, I think parents and students, Black parents and students were finding that there was a lot more control over the environment and what was being taught, a lot of less worry around racism. The number one reason that Black homeschoolers give for homeschooling is to protect their kids from racism. That's very different reason than drives white homeschoolers to homeschool their kids so, I mean, I just think it's really interesting. There's an academic portion of this, what you just were speaking to. Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to get, though, the academics that they need? We know that they might get some of the other things they need. Cultural affirmation, mm-hmm. a more calm environment, less chaos than some of the schools. I'm not saying all the schools, but, you know. And I just wonder, we make trade-offs all the time. We do. Sometimes we take a hit on one for the other, right? We do, because you're you're getting the content. So if I were to make that decision, it would be because of the content. It would be because of the racism. It would be because as a Black parent picking a school, you don't see a school that looks like it's going to serve your kid. Like, you know, you may have a calmer environment, but, you know, I have a a cousin, for instance, who was paying great money for a phenomenal Montessori school. And her child brought in a read aloud book, Henry Box Brown, you know, and the school was like, we're not comfortable with that book. Mm. And so there's somebody with resources who's being told that a book that has to do with freedom and slavery, we're not comfortable reading. And so people are making those trade-offs. Now, one thing that I'd be interested in, Chris, is what are the economic demographics of those parents? Because I think we're also talking about an economic thing, right? Because if you talk to my parents, my parents wanted schools open because their kids were not in a pot. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were either at home alone or at a daycare. Like if you talk to the parent that's like, my kid gets two square meals every day at school. So I'd be also interested in the economic piece of even the black parents, because the type of homeschooling that we're contributing to a pod and we're doing this, that is a, that's a resource game. And that is for the parents who can. And so I think that now would parents opt into it if they had the resources. I can believe that in a pod, they are happier 
especially if their option mm-hmm. was something that was chaotic or something that was not affirming their identity in a way that would produce confident and successful children. You know, one thing that I will say to push back just a little bit on that, mm-hmm. I hosted a conversation with multiple pod leaders from different states. No, it was actually two pod leaders and then a researcher and an educator who was running like a school. And they almost exclusively had projects that were with lower income families. That's wonderful. So one was the Oakland Reach. Lakeisha at Oakland Reach, they actually created a community hub for the parents that were out of school and couldn't, you know, they needed to get their kids educated. They deputized what they considered to be like community liberators, but they were, you know, education tutors Mm -hmm. that they helped. And they created an entire alternative school system in a way because the kids were out of school right? and they needed a place to be and they needed to keep learning and they needed literacy. But one of the things that I think that would bear out if people like look at some of the stats in some of the urban school districts, the kids that didn't come back, the most hesitant group of kids to come back were lower income black families that still weren't trusting of the fact that the schools had completely did all they needed to do to mitigate the threat of COVID. Oh, yes. Attendance is still low. Still low. Like, there's still kids they can't find. And this is after everybody got vaccinated and, you know, schools were reopening and they were saying we had redone the ventilation or whatnot. Now, I always thought that that could possibly be because these parents were realistic about the fact that many of the schools they attend were the crumbling schools. So when it came things to things like mitigation, COVID mitigation and HVAC and making sure that you had enough kind of like, you know, air conditioning systems and all that, I think these parents were honest enough to know that that wasn't their schools. Yes. You know, their schools weren't updated. And also, our people disproportionately had situations where someone in your household could be terminal with COVID, you know? And so Mm -hmm. we had people Mm -hmm. who didn't come back for that reason. Now, my question is, I think that the people like in Oakland and whatnot, I think that those are the outliers. I don't think that's necessarily the norm. Like, so if you talk to some of the parents who kept their kids home for the other reasons, I would question, were the kids happier? Because our kids were so ecstatic to come back to school. You know, our kids were ecstatic, like in the South side of Chicago, where my schools are ecstatic to come back to school. And that's what I heard across the nation because kids miss their friends. They miss their activities. They miss their teams, right? Like if you're in high school and also I'd be interested in the age group of the kid. Like if you're in high school, were you able to still play sports? Were you able to still be a part of those activities? And the chaos is a piece, you know, not all schools are chaotic, right? And so I think it depends, but I do think that parents had their eyes open to what is possible. And what I have to say is that's always positive. Parents have to know, and Black parents specifically, have to know what is possible. And so I think that parents had an opportunity to see what was possible, especially if your kids are happier, because it matters. I think what you just raised is something that we have to consistently think about. When we talk about parents, we have to just stop saying that word as if it means one group of people. When we think about the socioeconomic standing, the cultural standing, the geographic location, the local context of which people are living in, it almost makes using the word parents as if it's a descriptor of some group of people useless because there are parents that are facing lots of different, you just named some of them. Not all schools are chaotic. Not all schools are terrible. There is this thing around like sports, wanting to get back to sports and the prom and, uh, you know, the normal milestones of school and the fear of missing out on those things. Can you imagine if you were like one of the kids where you're one of the siblings 
where all your siblings went to prom and they all did these kind of milestones things and you didn't like you're Mm -hmm. the one that didn't get one of those things that's gonna leave a mark that's gonna be a thing that's gonna like last with you (laughs) a lot of kids had zoom proms like a lot of kids had zoom proms they had zoom graduations right yeah you know homecoming oh that sounds so depressing i mean there's just so many things that My schools are not chaotic, right? So there are things that kids missed about, and they're not, my schools aren't perfect. But even in schools that are dealing with things, there's still positive things that are going on. And imagine the kids in college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just so, I have friends who had kids. I'm an older parent, like I'm 48 with a three-year-old. And I have friends who have kids who are finished with college. So I get to see like the spectrum of kind of where people were. But there are definitely people though that opted, like you said, to keep their kids at home. And then there's the shootings now, the safety. Again, local context. I mean, mm-hmm. it's things like that that don't have to go into my thinking about, you know, what's going on with my kids. But I know for a fact that some other parent is dealing with some things that I don't have to. One of the things that I'm a little dicey on this question, whether or not the pandemic really did open up the eyes of parents, because I hear that said a lot in ed reform world. And it always, you know, <laughs> it feels a little bit like wishful thinking. The people who say that, you know, <laughs> like parents' yeah. eyes were opened and uh, the band-aid was ripped off and now they all know what they didn't know before. And <laughs> they, they got to see how teachers teach and they know that it's not being taught the right way. And I'm like, you wish. Right, You right. wish that that was going on in education world because right. I think, honestly, the average parent's knowledge of the whole school thing is very, very, very different than those of us who sit around and think about it all the time, for Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and all the investigating we do about different types of styles of teaching and learning and all that type of stuff. I wish that more Americans were really enlightened about it all of a sudden. I just don't feel like that's the case, for one. I agree with you. The second thing I'll say about that is it is my wishful thinking, though, that this is becomes a trend that we want to take over the process, that we want to like really own the process. I think some of us for so long, we're putting our kids into schools on autopilot. You put them in at kindergarten, maybe you make a decision at middle school, maybe you make a decision at high school, but for the most part, you're kind of hands off in a way. You show up to the football games, you show up to the teachers conferences, you answer the email if you get one, but kind of very much like autopilot, not knowing whether or not you're putting your kids in the best circumstance like in the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see us be more active in that, especially people of color, especially marginalized populations, because there are so many ways to just go with the flow and do the wrong thing for our kids. And also you just, you don't know what you don't know. I was in a Pahara group and a part of my project was to just figure out what did parents want, what did kids want? And I was a little bit saddened to see just in my very limited research that What I heard was like, we want a science fair or we want, you know, Mm -hmm. we want a basketball Mm -hmm. team. And what I realized is that we want to make sure that people know what's out there. So just like you said, you don't think that their eyes were white. And if anything, they were like, the school can give you a computer, Um, you know, if you need one. That was for me. I'm like, oh, you know what? We actually need to give kids a computer. Every child needs to have the computer and internet if we're even going to begin to close any gaps, right? Kids need access. Now, there's a whole social media thing that is tearing us apart right now on the flip side of that. But parents and kids, I realize. I need to figure out a way to show our students and our parents the world of opportunity so that way they can know how to advocate, right? The more you know, the more you know to ask questions. And so I agree with you that I think that 
our parents saw some things that, you know, either they didn't know or they became more aware of. But I do think that we have to figure out a way as a people to make sure that we're exposing each other, be it like through friendships. Like for instance, like the insurance policy I just got for my son is because one of my cousins who's much better at money than me opened my eyes. Like you need to get this policy, that policy and this. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I didn't know. We all learn through each other. And some of that needs to happen in an organized manner. And I don't know what the answer is, but there can be organized manners in which we help parents understand what their kids deserve and what they can be asking for and what what is the sky? If the sky's the limit, what's the sky? What's out there? You know, I would love to have your, you say, I don't have the answers. I'd love to push <laughs> you on the answer. Like, you know, the second thing I wanted to talk about with you today was this idea around Black educational capital, something that I have been thinking about for a long time, is how do we get Black people more in ownership of the means of education of their kids? And I'll just kind of like give a precursor of like where this comes from. There's the idea, like when I think about what tribal nations have in terms of their right to run their own schools and mm -hmm. operate their own governments, it's not perfect. But what I will say is they made a really good deal with the United States government in terms of securing their freedom of some sort, their autonomy of some sort. And I feel like African-Americans made the worst deal, possible deal. You know, it was kind of like, hey, how about if we just kind of make things equal from now on and we don't do any of that oppression stuff anymore. But it didn't come with any power, any land, any right to determine how we will educate our own kids, how we will grow our own nation, how we will become our own people, how we will protect our own like customs and, and cultures. It didn't come with any of that. Right. So I feel like we need to go back and think of this through. If Gloria Lanson Billings' idea around the education debt is true, meaning there is a debt that needs to be paid for the fact that we were denied education for centuries. So what would repayment of that debt look like? One of it would be getting us something closer to what the tribal nations have in terms of autonomy, like power. But I'm wondering what we would do with it. The last point I'll add here is prior to 1954, the majority of Black children were in the care of Black educators every day who cared about expanding their mind, but also cared about preparing them for democracy, preparing them to be good citizens and, and free people. And after 1954, with integration, we disestablished Black schools and Black schooling and even fired a bunch of the Black educators and the Black principals. And because of that, we lost a lot of educational capital. And I'm thinking through what it would take to regain it. Now, when I see people like you who run multiple schools, I think about the promise of that. Like, what's the promise of us doubling and tripling and quadrupling the Stacys of the world? And what could come of that? What will we learn in terms of teaching and learning and whatever? Is it too lofty of a vision, do you think? Is it is it too much based on what you know practically as an educator who runs schools? So, like, for me, this goes all the way back to, like, 1865 and the Freedmen's Bureau going bankrupt. And mm -hmm. it also takes me to like HBCUs. Like I'm a Hampton graduate. My mother is a Spelman graduate, you know, like my great aunts were all Clark graduates, you know? And so the reason why I say it, it takes me back to that because so much in terms of the promise was broken from that point, even before 1954, mm -hmm. even before desegregation, like the Freedmen's Bureau went bankrupt, right? It wasn't supported. It was not funded. And that's like the work that W.E.B. Du Bois did in articulating that so well, you know, in the souls of Black folk. And then it takes us like to modern day. So what does that look like, right? And what is the debt? And so the reason why I bring that up, because when you think about the debt, it goes back 
before 1954. Like you didn't even make two on the Treatments Bureau. It goes back to what is that debt and what would we do with it? I think we would have to get the Black educators because I think we're struggling sometimes right now with the departure of teachers in general to education. I think that we would have to make sure that we were giving people more than a livable wage. We would have to make sure that we have the content and the curriculum that is inspiring. We would have to help people understand the why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I think about just where young educators, the different pipelines, right? We would have to establish the pipelines because if all of a sudden we had the money, we still wouldn't have the teachers and, and, and necessarily some of the leaders. We'd have some but we would have to start establishing the pipelines. We'd have to go back to the black colleges. Like the black colleges, that's where the civil rights movement was born. You know, Martin Luther King was a Morehouse graduate. My mom marched with Martin Luther King at, and protested at Woolworth Counters. And I think we would have to go back to, in a practical sense, I'm a, I'm a very practical person. I think we'd have to go back to the black colleges. I think we would have to get into the houses of education. I think we would have to have our own Teach for America. It might be Black for America. I don't know what we would call it, but we would have to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we, we have to have our own alternative routes to certification to just create the pipeline, to create the content. We would have to have content creators. We would have to have the social workers, the Black social workers of America, the Black psychologists of America. We would need the after school of America, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying we have to do like the Wendy Cop <laughs> like concept, but she had something there, right? Because mm -hmm. she was increasing, but even their numbers are decreasing. They're getting ready to, you know, from what I've heard and what I've seen. And so I think that anything is possible, but I think the level of organization, because execution is everything. And I think that we would have to really figure out the funding. What's the amount? We have to plan backwards. Mm -hmm. What's the dream? What does it look like? We would have to crowdsource to get information on what people want. Cause like you said, we're not like, we're not just like monolithic group. Like there's, everybody wants something different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we would have to think about the trainings and we'd have to think about, and it would be, it would look different because the school that I want for my child might be different than the school that you want for your child. So I think it would be, I think anything is possible, but I think there's a, a lot, a lot of planning that it would require. There'd have to be a whole organization where that's their full-time job is to get the funding and figure out, you got to figure out the plan even before the funding because no one's going to fund it. Get the lawyers. We need the NAACP. I mean, we would have to come together as a collective in a way that I don't know that I've seen. We, we get upset, we protest, but you know, Martin Luther King spent two years planning the bus boycotts mm. in the absence of the internet, in the absence of cell phones. Like the amount of planning to make sure that everybody had a ride to work so that they could stay off the buses for two years. And so it's the planning and the execution and it's the commitment because people who are educating right now are trying to close the COVID learning loss gaps. We're trying to figure out the, the culture of schools right now that look completely different post COVID than they did beforehand. The needs of the kids are significantly more. I think educators are tired and tapped out to a certain degree. So it's finding the people to do the work. So on that point, so first of all, you yes to everything you just said, <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like you just gave me the game plan. We need black <laughs> colleges. I mean, like literally you just fleshed it out. Here's the like, here's the business plan. First of all, let's just start at the very top. Black per pupil income generates $128 billion a year. So you have to at some point think through if we could do things differently and we had $128 billion to educate 8 million children, because that's what the black population is, 
Now that starts your business plan. Okay. You have to go from there. You have to, okay, so, all right, let's whiteboard this. We got 128 billion. We got 8 million kids that need an education. Well, what are our assets? Well, we have black colleges and universities that have a history mm-hmm. of turning out the majority of black professionals. That's right. So the black professionals we need the most are teachers. And we need to change what teaching looks like and what the promise to teaching is. You you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. You got to think about what's the new business model for teaching. It has to be something where you get paid enough to live first of all. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's think about the business model. What do black colleges do, number one, to make the education to become a teacher affordable? It just feels like a series of questions that we need to ask and then design for. Why don't these colleges have lab schools? Oh, they do. But do the black colleges have like lab charters or something where they can, you know? Some of them are, so it's interesting in Virginia, by the way, they're actually looking into that deeper right now. But Many of the black colleges do. My mom went to Oglethorpe Elementary, which was, and my mother's 82, which was Spelman's lab what? school, lab elementary school. Yeah. Oh, wow. And my mom's a retired principal from Cincinnati Public. And so there are some that do. There are some that don't. Some of them were private. They're now starting to look in to charter. They're actually reaching out to charter leaders throughout the country. I know Virginia is doing it specifically to say, hey, how do we create a lab school? What should it look like? And so here's the thing. There's going to be a huge debate on what that training looks like. There should be. And there should be. I mean, there should be. There's going to be a huge debate on, on what that training looks like, but they do. And I think there are more that are working on it. So it's a work in progress, but there are some that do. It makes so much sense to be able to have labs that could try educational practices, refine and perfect, and then get them out. Become the centers of getting the good information on instruction out to the rest of the world. Not just to black schools, but to other schools, right? Like Because you've got these labs that do it. You also mentioned something too, like out of school time, which is a big passion of mine. You mentioned so many things in your your thing. I'm, I think we should just take this <laughs> clip of everything that you just said and say that is the business plan in a lot of ways. If we answer a lot of the questions that you mentioned, but the number one most daunting thing that you said is the level of organization and execution that it would take to get it right is beyond anything we've ever seen, right? Like we've seen everything from race to the top, no child left behind, Common Core, small schools movement, school consolidation movement, standards of testing, assessments, blah, blah. We've seen so many big, 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 big ambitious things happen in the level of execution and organization to actually get them done has been daunting. But now you're depressing me. See, you gave me the plan. (laughs) You were right there. You had me. You You gave me the plan. And then... Then I went and depressed myself, I should say, about the level of organization that it takes. And the politics of getting that. What was that number you gave me? 128 what? Billion? $128 billion. The politics of getting that 128 billion. You know, because I mean, what you're what you're really talking about, I mean, because you brought up the tribal nation, you're really talking about like, give us Texas. You know what I'm saying? Like you're talking about succeeding from the union. You're like, we need a whole like that's at, at, once you get to that level. No, I wouldn't give it back if they gave it to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I would return it. <laughs> Look, you're talking about a you're talking about a whole nation now at this point. You know what I mean? If we're talking about Every single dollar for every single black child, that's, give us California. You know, maybe that they're, they're about to sink. So you got to pick somewhere else. But you're like, give us, because I mean, it's like a, a, a really large reservation. Or, you know, like, this is a great point. I mean, you're, you're challenging me in some ways here. Like, what would that allotment mean? It could mean some structure, some infrastructure, some control over some places that are definitely our own. 
but also for the people, for those of the 8 million black children that aren't going to be within a tribal nation type of thing, what do they get with their allotment when they go to somewhere else Mm -hmm. also, right? Like Native American students, when they come to traditional public schools, they come with some other expectations, some federally protected expectations of what will happen for them. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Again, I don't know that it's always perfect. I was the member of a school board that had a sizable population of Native American students, but I just know they came with some federal protections that we didn't always get. Can you name them? Can you, because just to make sure that I, we're on the same page, can you name those for me? Like just some of them, just so I can make sure that I'm, I'm well, normal. So locally, we had an agreement with the tribal nations, number one, where they had a seat at the table and we had to do data reviews with them over time. There were things we couldn't do to strip their culture, specifically, you know, language programs. We had to honor customs that were, that came out of like, long-standing battles that they had with the federal government that created a separate class. They had a separate division within government that actually worked to protect their rights, right? So we could run afoul of their rights and they would have legal recourse that I thought would be good for Black students to have. Wow. So you just enlightened me. I don't know that I've ever known that. I imagine people who are listening right now didn't know that either. And I mean, if you think about it, we're fighting right now because they're trying to say that Black history is critical race theory, right? This is my point. Yeah. That is such a good point around how naked we are. Our deal is bad. (laughs) The post-slavery deal, post-reconstruction deal that we got, that Black people got, the Black people deal was terrible. It just literally was. It was just kind of like, hey, you know how we've been impressing you? How about if we don't do that as much? How about we don't do that as much? Yeah. I mean, they were negotiating with people who have gone through how many years without education, culture, and tradition. And so you're right. You are so right that we got handed a bad deal. And so I think you asked the right question, right? Like, and how do we, how do we right the wrongs and what is the debt? Especially considering the fact that like, when we look at the politics right now, I mean, just look at what's going on in Florida and different places and what people are fighting against. Like we're thinking about what is our Mecca and people are trying to tear apart the scraps that we did receive. That's the part that is so depressing to me about where we are mm-hmm. right now is as a nation, the hard fought battle that we had just to be included mm-hmm. in the curriculum just to have ethnic studies is under review now by white power bases and white power sources that can trump us on what mm-hmm. we've won already. They can just take it away from us. And this is my thing around the federal protections for for very specific historic reasons for certain marginalized populations that we didn't get. It's really important now because now we're having to even argue whether we have a right to exist within the curriculum of a state. Yes. And we have states that can basically just say, we're going to outlaw black intellectual thought completely. Mm-hmm. We're going to take whole schools of thought off of the table. And we have to just suck it up right? Like we don't have any recourse. We don't have governors. Right. We don't have senators, right? Like we don't have a president. The other team is so well set up with their power base to be able to to deny us what we want. So when I look at the Native Americans, I see inspiration for something, again, that's not perfect, right. but it just was a better deal than what we got. You also said something, though, that I'm going to add to the plan. See, I'm going to steal the <laughs> Stacey plan. This is, this is all going to be part of my, my plan here. When you, when you were naming off all those organizations, like the, you know, there, there's like a black association of like school counselors and psychiatrists mm-hmm. and psychologists mm-hmm. and whatever. We have professional associations that are not united on a common agenda around what we should be doing for our children. And right. why, I don't know. I don't know why they haven't had that day yet where they all meet. And where they all come together and they spend a few days together thinking through what's going to be their collective 
agenda mm-hmm. for what's best for our kids, right? Yes. And we got civil rights groups. We got the Urban League. We got NAACP. We, have, yep. we got the UNCF, right? And we have, you know, Urban League and NAACP at one point asking for a memorandum to, you know, stop charter schools. So That's right. That's right. There's a, a lack of unification, as you suggested. And I want to add one thing on to like our plan. I'm like, okay, this is the plan, Chris. We need like, <laughs> we need the Black Lawyer Association, yeah, right? Yes. Because <laughs> yes. we need some lawyers. As you talk about stuff, I'm like, we need some people, we need some litigators, we need some people to fight for these things and to create a legal fight all the way through the, to the Supreme Court that, you know, that can't be denied. And then we need marketers because now we have to market, you know, our need. We need the best marketing people in the nation because I did some study through Ravi and with the Arena Summit, but it was on the anatomy of a movement. And it looked at movements and it looked at the LBGTQ movement. And forgive me if I have left off anything there, but they started off by saying equality and it fell flat. But when they moved their movement, to love. When they were trying to equate the movement to the civil rights movement, it was falling flat. But when they switched the language, that's that's branding, that's marketing. Yeah, you know what's interesting to me about that, and, and I will switch to the next topic here, but this is the thing about historically marginalized groups demanding the right settlement, getting the right settlement. I get that they changed the language on that, but now that's up for review again, and everything that they won could be stripped and, and won I back. Know, they didn't make I a rights know. based. They didn't make it about rights because they thought that they could make a political victory quickly to get it passed by switching it to love. Well, mm-hmm. love isn't a legislative thing. Rights right, are. Right. Constitutional yeah. rights are different than love. So I can get you to decide for 10 minutes that you want to vote on something because you think I have a right to love, but you also have a right then to go back and strip my rights away again when you don't think love is the thing anymore, right? Yeah. But my rights, Black people should have rights. But they did win on some rights. Even though the rights are getting stripped away now, they did win on marriage. They did win. So they they did win on rights, because but they had to get like marketing. They had to get to people around love so they could then get to the rights, to get people to understand. And I think that we as a people need to collectively think about how of the narrative, right? Like Martin Luther King was very intentional around what he filmed so that people could see, like he strategically used TV, abuse. Like everybody now knows the story of Rosa Parks and Claudette. And he was very strategic on who he was going to put. Now, I'm not saying those things hold now, but he was strategic then. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And and, and it worked. people will come for you today about like, you know, respectability politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) canceled. Like, you know, but it worked then, right? Because he spent time strategically dealing with the audience. And for people listening, I don't think everybody knows that story. For people listening, you know, before Rosa Parks not taking a seat, there was Claudette who didn't take her seat. And she was a young teenage black girl Mm -hmm. who refused to give up her seat. Her case was not taken up because she was not seen as being the Rosa Parks. She wasn't seen as being the model character. Yes. They were both members of the junior NAACP. Mm -hmm. And so she was model, but there was a story about potentially her becoming pregnant and was unwed. And so all of that was strategic, including Rosa Parks. And so when Claudette didn't give up her seat, that was strategy then. Mm -hmm. And then when she became an unwed mother. It didn't work with strategy. And so then they chose Rosa Parks. But that level of strategy, we can disagree. We can say, you know, in this current culture, that, blah, blah, blah. But they still did something 
that worked. And I think that we have gotten away from figuring out the narrative, the strategy to get the legalities, to get the rights, like you said, to happen, to get the protections. I think I'm agreeing with you. I'm going to change kind of my language on it just a little bit to say, (laughs) I think strategy is not everything, is not something that everybody does well. I've had a few mentors in my life that were super good at strategy. You know, I've had way more mentors that were good at budget or, you know, organization or whatnot. But when it came down to, like, when I think about the five people in my life who are masters of strategy, um, first of all, it's not five people. <laughs> uh, it's it's really not. And uh, it's such a tough thing. And I think you're right in that when we think about the movements that we need and that we want to be effective, strategy is one of the things where we have to be super straight on. Like, we have to be so good and so solid. So let's let's go to the last issue of the day. And this is one of the things that really made me think that like I need your help. So when I was watching everything that was going on with the situation that has bubbled up in in the public around uh, Louisiana State University, women's basketball, LSU, you know, yeah. these actors and these players or whatnot, that's not my world. That's not something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. I'm not a women's right. basketball thing. But this bubbled up because of the Bayou Barbie, the so-called Bayou <laughs> Barbie. That's right. And her name is Angel Reese. She is a basketball player who has a lot of swag. And in the championship, the favorite in many ways that was getting a lot of the praise was Caitlin Clark from Iowa. Mm-hmm. Well-deserved in a lot of ways because she's a phenomenal player phenomenal who herself player. has a lot of swag and whatnot. Oh, yeah. But she she would make, she would do some taunts. She would do some mm-hmm. things to people or whatnot, of which Angel Reese in the last game with them actually returned <laughs> one of those very same <laughs> hand gestures Mm-mm-mm. that Caitlin was known for. Yeah. And suddenly you had grown-ass men talking about how <laughs> bad it was for her to do that. I mean, they call her an idiot. An idiot. A POS. Yes. One called her a POS. One called her an idiot. Uh, effing idiot. Yes. Yes. And ni- is she like 19? Talk about a little girl. I mean, not to say a little girl, but she's, she's 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Right in there. And they were old enough to be her grandfather. It was creepy in a way. It was way. creepy. And, yes. And it was creepy mm-hmm. and racist. Uh huh. And, you know, there was this dynamic between her. The, these are, we're talking about two athletes that are at the top of their game. We're talking about two athletes that train very hard in life to do what they do and have earned the right to be as braggadocious as they are. Amen. Two athletes. So in every way, these are two American young women who have earned their right to do everything that they're doing. One of them is seen as a courageous, amazing player, and the other one of them is seen as a effing idiot, mm-hmm. a POS, a whatever, yep. and everything that's bad with America. What's the difference between these two people and how does it apply to education? Okay, so I had to pull this up because I had to pull up a Malcolm X quote. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. And the most neglected person in America is the black woman. And so not only does it have to do with education, it has to do with every institution in America. It has to do with how we as black women are treated when we have the same amount of confidence in a boardroom at work. We're seen as aggressive. We are seen as intimidating. It takes me back to Sojourner Truth. Aren't I a woman? Because I'm like, you are speaking to, this is how you're called. Aren't I a woman? Mm-hmm. You mean to tell me you looked at that little girl and you wouldn't call a little girl from your family, you wouldn't speak of them in that manner. And so from education to CEOs in boardrooms to 
going to the grocery store to, I've seen pictures of police officers at Marette. There's little girls leaving a pool party and the way they threw these mm-hmm. little black girls mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. on the cement. If somebody mm-hmm. did that to their daughter, their granddaughter, their wife, aren't I a woman? And so mm-hmm. it goes, it goes through and through, Chris. And I mean to tell you the black women delegation behind the scenes, we were like, baby, yes, because it's just, and it was so, I don't like for bad things to happen, but it was so good for that to get highlighted, right? Even Caitlin Clark was like, that's what we do. She had to like eventually she say something to, yeah. else. I mean, come she on. She had to, but, but I, I will say, at least she said it. You see what I'm saying? She didn't have That's to. She could have gone. She could have gone with the other narrative. You see what I'm saying? She could have. But she's an athlete. She knew better. Okay. Yeah. I was not a big athlete, but I was a cheerleader. I played a little soccer. You talk smack, and it's the different standards. There's a completely different group of standards. It's a different standards. It's the racism. And I think there's a half of the American population that understands this. Mm-hmm. And there's a half that doesn't have to understand it. Right. So, you know, after all of this is said and done, the Bayou Barbie and the LSU squad are the winners and the victors. But yet the first lady of the United States wants to invite both teams. Suddenly we want both teams to come and we want Caitlin to come too, right? This actually mirrors some stories that we've seen across the country where black valedictorians for the first time, you know, they've, you've had black valedictorians, their schools have wanted to couple them with a white co-valedictorian. Now we're going to have two. (laughs) Yeah, now we're going to have two valedictorians so that the white girl can also get in. And this just goes to tell you who the power base sees as their family, as their cousin, Mm -hmm. as their sister, as their aunt, as their daughter, whatnot. Caitlin is their daughter. Mm -hmm. They don't see that when they see Angel Reese. They do not see that as that's one of us. That's one of the daughters of America. That's one of our people. So we should invite her because she won and she deserves it. But we should also invite Caitlin also because she's actually family. That's sad. And that's who we wanted to win. (laughs) That's who we wanted to win. That's who we were rooting for. We couldn't say it out loud, Mm -hmm. but that's who we want to win. And we think about the way that this permeates schools and it becomes really important. You know, Black girls are 14 times more likely to be suspended from school for some of the same type of behaviors that white girls do. Right. When mm-hmm. white girls get in trouble for things, they don't get the same treatment. So the shaking your hand and taunting your opponent with the hand movement for one person, that's just, you know, athletic swag. And for another person, that is an offense of some sort. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. That you should be beaten up and ridiculed for mm-hmm. in the press with very few people coming to your aid or your defense. We have seen situations where tests, where we have had teachers look at video of kids. Mm -hmm. And in the video, we have asked, look for infractions, right? And what they are shown are videos where there are no infractions. They're not. This was just a test. And the majority of teachers saw infractions in the black kids. They made up. They just made them up. Whole ass infractions that didn't exist They didn't know they were being tested with video that had none, but when they had to, when you forced them to look for infractions and find them, they found them more in black students than anybody else. That's what I think is at play here. And this goes back to our previous conversation, the thing that we were talking about before, why black people need to own more of the means of education, because we got to get our kids out of the hands of people that want to give them the Angel Reese treatment. And we also have to, we have training on bias, because you might even find some black educators to do that as well. Right? Absolutely. And some of the training on bias has to do with going back to your 
own background on how discipline was handled in your house. What are your preconceived notions, you know? And I'm not a diversity expert. I bring experts in to do that. Because sometimes people say, I'll never forget, I was doing like an internship somewhere and they, someone turned to me and said, hey, we need diversity training. And uh, can you do it? No, I can't. Like just because I'm a <laughs> black woman what I do. doesn't mean that I can do diversity training. There are people who actually study this stuff. And so I think that we have to address what exists now because we're not going to get our kids out of all these situations tomorrow. We do it ourselves and may not even realize it. There has to be training and it has to be, it can't be like one time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be ongoing and I have to hold myself even accountable because what happens is you get all these competing priorities and I've got to get back to that training, right? Because it happens. We all have to go through it because until we unpack our own stuff, we won't even know. And that has to do with how you show up in a classroom, how you're viewing kids, whether or not you think that a child is capable of achievement and discipline. I'll never forget at my high school, I saw it all the time. I told you it was number one high school in the state of America. Love my high school, but black children from that high school will tell you about an experience that was separate and unequal. You know, where if we're both hanging out on the back steps, then the security guard comes in, like the white kids keep playing hacky sack and the black kids get taken to the office for a detention. Like, but we were sitting on the same steps as them. I remember working really hard towards really good grades because I wanted to be in double A and AP classes. And they would put your names on a big sheet in the middle of the hall and me going up and me not seeing my name. And I ran up to my teacher and tears in my eyes. And I said, I I had all A pluses in your class. And he looked at me and he said, well, I didn't see that for you. I didn't see that for you. Wow. But I had all A pluses. F you talking about. You see what I'm saying? Sorry, not to curse, but I'm like, huh? You know? wow. And I went and asked a white girl whose name was on the list, who was in the class with me. And I asked her, what were your grades? She's like, I got an A minus here and a such and such there. And I'm like, such and such said she had A minuses. I had all A pluses. He's like, and he shrugged his shoulders and laughed. I'm like, oh, I just didn't see that for you. And you know, needless to say, I had a black mother who was a principal in education at the time who was fierce. And so I had a fierce advocate, like, show me the results, show me every kid, show me every GPA and help me understand. And so I I was able to be in the class because I had earned it, but not everybody has that fierce advocate. Something you said that stood out to me is like, and not enough people to necessarily have your back. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's the training for the kids that are going to be in class tomorrow. And it's the curriculum so that when kids are growing up, they're seeing stories of our people that are more than slavery and civil rights that are of achievement, right? So that mm-hmm. one day when they become a teacher, like it starts now, like there's a kid sitting in a class right now who, if they don't have a curriculum that mirrors other people other than just them, they're never going to have those preconceived notions challenged. Like, yes, Things change with segregation, but like we still live in a world with everyone. And so that's true. We have to educate everyone, you know, and that's a daunting challenge. But to me, a part of it starts with the content, the curriculum that we're fighting for right now. Every child needs that curriculum, not just black children. You need a mirror and a window. This is true. You need a mirror of yourself and a window into other things so that if you become a teacher one day that you understand the struggles, you understand the triumphs, and you have respect for other people. 
And I think that's a part of what we're fighting for. I'm going to challenge this last part. So first, let me say this. Yes. This isn't a challenge. This is to say the story that you just told about not being up on the board and your teacher just saying, I didn't see that for you. If I take a story like that, first of all, it pierces my heart to hear that story. <laughs> and if I take a story like that and amplify it by thousands and tens mm. of thousands, right? Mm-hmm. And then I amplify it by the number of students that don't have a principal for a mom who's going to march down there and say, no, 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 no. We're about to set this straight. You got that right. right. You got that right. I'm thinking about all of the lost hopes and dreams and potential that comes out mm. of a situation like that. The dispiriting of a group of people that in every way are just children. They're just kids and mm. you have just clipped their wings. You have just clipped their mm. God-given potential. God set them up with a very specific set of wings and you just clipped them. What an evil thing to do, first mm. of all. So that's not at all a challenge to what you were saying. And this thing around windows and mirrors, I think the dominant population has 100% mirrors for their education. There you go. And the marginalized are given 100% windows. Amen, yes. And this is like the Du Bois dual consciousness thing. The Mm -hmm. children of the Mm -hmm. marginalized have to grow up living in dual consciousness, living through somebody else's eyes, seeing somebody else's heroes, seeing somebody else's way of seeing the world. So we need to actually have more mirrors for our kids. Amen. Right? Amen. More mirrors, right? And we need another population to actually get more windows. (laughs) More windows? Yeah. I am in full (laughs) agreement with you. (laughs) Open those windows. Those windows need to be wide. Big windows. Big windows. Ceiling to ceiling. Yes. Yes. I am in 100% agreement with you because Dubois is one of my favorites. And when you talk about those, that dual identity and even Baldwin touches on it, like you're consciously in a place of rage. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly because until that happens, we're not going to see the changes. Absolutely. And you know what? I think we have to do our work to make it happen and make it come about ourselves. You talked earlier about organization. So mm-hmm. what a wonderful place to land the plane on this podcast. A point of perfect agreement. <laughs> Windows! Point of perfect agreement. Really appreciate you coming on today. For people listening, my guest host has been Stacey Shales Harvey, who is a co founder and chief executive officer of Regeneration Schools, a nonprofit charter school management organization dedicated to creating and revitalizing schools through college prep and character mission. And I am so thankful to have you not just do your other Lost Debate show, but to come on the Citizen Stewart show and help us be smarter and wiser about this. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And for those of you listening, we love the fact that we have some very stable and informative listeners who send us information that we need to help us make the show better. There are two ways that you can do that. You can leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171, or you can send us an email to Show at lostdebate.com, and we will read those email, and we will listen to your voicemail, and we will take it to heart and either feature it in our shows or take your topic ideas, develop them, and you'll hear them in a future show. As always, thank you for listening. Go check out all of the other Lost Debate shows, programs. Please share this show with your friends and family. Leave a message and subscribe. That also helps us to grow the audience. And as always, we appreciate you. 